This is Central Control Stand by. fellow listeners welcome back to the show we have a great episode coming up for you and if you end up not liking it well then uh, we'll do better next time yeah and um my name's derek and i'm tim yeah what is this show this is transmissions from the forbidden planet podcast that was beautiful uh yeah we're gonna do a, we're gonna talk about some movies that um we feel derek and i are underrated, underappreciated, and we we're like, hey guys, what's the matter? Why why is everybody wrong, and we're the only two that are right about these? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, you see a lot of these films that we're going to talk about in this episode, uh, labeled as guilty pleasures, and I have no guilt in liking any of the films we're going to talk about. Yeah. Right. You right. Know? And um, I guess it happens to people sometimes. You know, there's like right. um, there's just movies that I uh, and, and you, you know we tend to agree on most a lot of them. You and I. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is obviously this is opinion because there's going to be people out there that are are on the normal bandwagon that think these movies suck or are not what they're crack up to be or just forgettable. With that said, make sure that you realize any movie that we mention and are about to talk about, we might get into spoilers. So if you haven't seen them, you can shut off your little listening device and come back later when you feel it is a desirable time to listen to it. Or you let us spoil it. Yeah, let us spoil the dookie out of it. Yeah, why not? So with that said. Yeah. Piss off and go watch the movie. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the first title we're going to talk about? We're going to talk about a little film from 2004 Mm -hmm. called The Lady Killers. Yeah. It's a Coen Brothers movie, and it's, I think, one of the more on the bottom of the barrel as of the most disliked of of the Coen Brothers uh, catalog. Yeah, uh, of course, it's a remake of a 1955 movie, right? Starring Sir Alec Guinness. Mm, yes, indeed. And also, I don't think you can point at it being a remake as a negative for it because the Coen Brothers remade True Grit, and everyone loved it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And well, I you know whatever for whatever reason I think you and I saw this together in the theater back when it came out, right? And um, it hit all the uh, cylinders for me. Yeah, me too. It's weird. Everybody hated this movie, and you and I continue to quote this movie to the de- to this day. Madam, we must have waffles. We must all have waffles forthwith. We must all think 
and let's all have waffles and thank each and every one of us to the very best of his ability. Yep. Uh, well, you know, I, I find it to be one of the, the Coen brothers' more quotable movies, believe it or not. And, <laughs> totally, and, yeah. and I think there's so many funny lines in this movie. And, and I guess I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, the top billing star in the movie is Tom <laughs> Hanks. Right. And everybody has this certain whatever mold that they put Tom Hanks into. Right. Goofy guy. Lovable underdog or whatever. Right. <clears throat> and, 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 and in this, he is strange, dark, and weird. Right. And I think he's fucking awesome in it. He's amazing in it. Yeah. That's what... Well, so there are a few things that endear me to certain films. Sometimes if they're bad, I still like them or anything. And one of them fits this criteria. Not that this movie's bad, but it has someone that I... One of the actors I love and that's Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what did it. But also, I love the Coen Brothers movie. Yes. And this movie kind of fits in between a kind of odd period for the Coen Brothers because in 2000, they have Oh Brother come right, out. Which is a huge, huge I mean, crosses over in weird ways yeah. that I would have, ne- if someone would have told me two years before that this movie's going to come out and it's a Coen Brothers movie. And it's kind of follows the same <clears throat> rambunctious kind of out there humor that uh, Raising Arizona had. <laughs> right. But it's also going to cross over into the mainstream with like bluegrass music and shit. And you're di- I would have been like, fuck you. No way. Never going to happen. Right. And then that comes out and does this amazing thing. They follow that up with another really quiet film that doesn't do a whole lot which is a man who wasn't there or... which i also love yeah me too and then a little later on they do that one george clooney movie intolerable cruelty which is a little lower on the list for me of my favorites uh-huh. but yeah and that was kind of a bigger film as far as a big studio film Right. So they follow that up, and that's not as big of a hit. They follow that up with this, which is a long gestating remake that goes all the way back to, like, 98, I think. Uh They do this film, and they reunite with a lot of people that a lot of their careers started out because Sam Raimi... Yeah, he has. He they they started out with Sam Raimi. They even were the roommates at one time. Apparently. Yeah, right. And they and helped so, each other with Blood Simple and uh, Evil Dead. They like helped right. each other with those movies. Right. Right. And so you know the link to Sam Raimi in this movie is pretty obvious if you if you're aware of the uh, Evil Dead movies because we see old good old Bruce Campbell show up in the yeah, scene. Yeah, right, right. And then you have uh, Barry Sonnenfeld who would was their director of photography. Mm-hmm. In uh, Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, a lot of their films, yeah. fantastic. And then he goes on to be kind of big in, in his own respect with like the Men in Black movies, and yeah. I guess if you want to call Wild Wild West a kind of a big film. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, He comes back and to help produce this, and so it's a bunch of old friends getting back together. And apparently, it's also a movie. The original movie is one that that the Coen Brothers really love. All that said, the reason why I'm saying is it is the reason I connect with it is it's people that I like already, actors and directors, coming together to do something that they love. And to me, you can feel a lot of passion from this film. It's a lot of love and fun. And I just think the the humor is genuine. I guess it just fits my dark sensibilities. Right. Because it's fucking hilarious. I think it's fucking hilarious. I guess nobody else does, and I don't quite get it. Everybody looking at me like I'm some kind of fucker for losing a sorry-ass job, and this motherfucker brings his bitch to the motherfucking waffles. Right. Yeah, the, everything about it is there's a lot of sarcasm and, and um, just a lot of dark humor. 
Yeah, they're touching on a lot of different, like, um, cultures in this movie. Right. And how they bring everything together, and, and you, you get to see a, a very different side of, like you said, Tom Hanks is, is bringing something very different to a characteristic. You, you, this is a role that you've never seen Tom Hanks in before and haven't seen him in since. Right. Well, I mean, I would say there's a little bit of the character from this movie and a character he does in Cloud Atlas, but I, I know what He's you mean. He's playing this kind of, like... Um, Mark Twainish, like <laughs> Southern gentleman, right. who's like educated and obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe, and he dresses in all white, just like Mark Twain, and right. has a you know has has like the uh, Colonel, Colonel Sanders, Sanders beard, beard and mustache. <laughs> yes, exactly, right. and he's extremely animated, and right. I fucking adore him in this movie. It's mm-hmm. my probably my favorite movie of his that oh, I've wow. ever seen. Oh, okay, honestly. Plus, there's some of the supporting actors like um, uh, Marlon Marlon Wayans is actually at his finest in this. <laughs> yeah, he's, <great. laughs> he's, and, and he's so good. And, and uh, J.K. Simmons, of course, is. This is what made J.K. Simmons stand out to me. Even though he was in the Spider-Man movies, and everyone loved right. him in the Spider-Man movies. Sam Raimi, yeah. I locked on to him. Right. In this movie, I was like, that guy's fucking great. Yeah, he the the character he portrays is kind of like this, like uh, everything's a little too serious kind of uh, nerdy behind the scenes tech guy and he's has some of the greatest lines in the in like to me in Hollywood history that I've ever <laughs> right. heard okay and uh, he just takes himself way too seriously and he has a, a really antagonizing relationship with the Marlon Wayans's character and all that right stuff. of course wouldn't have it any other way yeah, you damn right you won't up yours punk oh fuck you and the Swiss miss and it's so fucking funny and his character because he takes everything so seriously when serious situation comes up this character Mr. Pancake who yeah. J.K. Simmons plays Garth Pancake right right and so yeah. this character has what he thinks is the ingenuity to calm things down yeah. when things get all flustered and everything and so he goes he has this go-to line that he says throughout the movie which is great right of course Easiest thing in the world. And so you get all these misfits together, and then you get a character like what Tom Hanks is over all of these misfits. It's really yeah. fun to watch everything just unravel. And it's one of those films and that, like... It's a heist movie, too. So right. it has that kind of, like, uh, if Ocean's Eleven wasn't cool and was totally a bunch of misfit idiots and, <laughs> right. uh, you know, that whole thing. Totally. Stephen Root, too. We forgot Stephen Root is in this. Oh, yeah. God. He, yeah, he's a Coen Brothers Regular. staple. And right. he, yeah, and he's so good in this. He's so... Yeah. yeah. And, and so this is what I mean, you know, because a lot of people, when the, a lot of the criticisms come up, they point at this one as just being way over the top and the comedy's too broad and all of this stuff. But it's the same stuff that's going on in Oh Brother and yeah. Raising Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. All of this stuff is there. There is no way it's more over the top than Raising Arizona. No. Because Raising Arizona is literally a warner brothers cartoon right in the flesh right you know what i mean and how much how much more over the top do you get than that right i would even go as far as to say as while this movie's taking place in arizona raising arizona's taking place <laughs> right right in, yeah, in yeah. the in the cohen verse if you will yeah <laughs> i mean it just has a yeah. link to it yeah it takes place in the south and there's a lot of uh, um they're using this older black lady's basement as like the access to this casino and all this stuff and um the, the interactions right. of trying to abide by this uh, very traditional southern old lady, you know, f- f- the right. rules of her house, you know, and it's so funny. She is uh, so Marva good. Munson, who owns yeah. the house, and it's played by Irma Hall. She's amazing in it. He's a good boy now, mm-hmm. but he done gone down to the Costco in Pascagoula and got himself a blaster. What? And he been playing that music. 
You know, they calls it hippity-hop music, but it don't make me want to go hippity-hop. Because it's a very big switch up from the original. Original one was a, a really petite, uh, quiet, conservative. English lady. Yeah, yeah. white English lady, yeah. Right, and Irma right. Hall is very much like, a, you know, she's very outspoken, boisterous. Yeah. 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 She's gonna put you in your place if you're if you're breaking the rules. She's right. like hyper hyper religious and right. You know, attends church on a reg on the reg and makes her five dollar contributions. That's part so. of the fun too of watching Tom Hanks's scholarly character, Professor uh, G. H. Yeah. Door, tiptoe around that without agreeing with her. That's the right, great right, things right. about that. Yeah, because he's actually renting a room in the house so that he can use the cellar. Right, and they're using their, the what they're doing in the cellar. It's a root cellar, so it's exposed walls there's like um dirt walls and uh they're gonna tunnel down to the <laughs> to the casino vault for the riverboat uh casinos right, right. on the docks right but they're they're pretending to be musicians <laughs> of a long dead instruments from like say i don't know georgian periods or right 17th centuries 8 to 6th 18th century and they have stuff i've never heard yeah, of yeah all before. these weird instruments which apparently were very, very real and uh, some of them had to be rebuilt for the movie, which is another one of those weird, realistic things that the Coen brothers do in their films. They, 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 get, they get oddly fascinated with certain things and cultures and stuff, and then they implement them into this film. And it's not nothing that you would ever, watching it, a regular moviegoer would be like, oh, that's very fascinating that they did that, because you'd never know about it unless you read about it. Right. But it's one of those things. The other members of the team is this um, this one Asian character who is like uh, the general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The general. Yeah, he's known for his tunneling techniques, and of course, because they need to tunnel down to the back of the vault and break in. Right. And then uh, they have this big dumb football player guy who has yeah, like lump. you know lump <laughs> lump his name is literally lump and he, he can barely talk. Right. And he, he's the muscle, but he's he's an idiot. Right. And um, George Wallace plays the yeah. George Wallace is the sheriff, right? right. He's yeah. great. And, He's um, so good. And I mean, everyone is great. That again, the whole ensemble thing. That's another one of the staples of Coen Brothers movie is they they litter their films with really good actors. Actors maybe you've never even heard of before, but really turn something small into something unique. And that's right. another one of these things that these movies do. Even when you cut to Miss Munson at the church, everyone in the church, the how they're reacting and everything, the yeah. preacher and how he delivers some of his lines, it's all great. It really yeah. gets you in the atmosphere, you know? Yeah, it does, it does. And and of course so does their soundtrack, just like uh, Oh man! <laughs> uh, like most of their movies, they have these really interesting, obscure pieces yeah. of music that they're using, and and uh, to me, the soundtrack to this movie is is top notch. It's <laughs> yeah. that kind of bleed into these old instrumental score part that are being played by the instruments that the guys in the band are pretending to play. It's brilliant <laughs> right. stuff. It's really good stuff. Right. Right. And so, yeah, we could blather on more and more about the movie, about what we like or certain scenes or something like that. But it's just one of those movies that I was immediately after seeing was endeared to like, uh, yeah. you know, because you go you go see a, a I do anyway, as a Coen Brothers fan, as a Tom Hanks fan and all this stuff, you go see the Coen Brothers movie with an expectation of 
where is this going to rank on my favorites list? Right, How right. are they going to bring it to me on this, or are they, is it going to be something that's more middling? And when you see one like I when I we we saw this in the theater coming out, like no way that was one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies, no <laughs> yeah. fucking way. And yeah, and it ended up being one of the most reviled ones, which I yeah I, I just don't get it. Right. So, but there are there are stories out there that I've heard Tom Hanks and I think you've said you've heard J.K. Simmons mm-hmm. talk about how they 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 very much still like they, this movie and they yes. get some people still coming up to him and say, "Oh man, Lady Killer yeah. loved it." Yeah, if I could see either of those guys, though, though this is the movie I would bring up to them. Yep. I would say I. And kind of like I, you know, if I met Jim Carrey, I would say the Cable Guy is the movie yep. that I hold you highest. Right. right. Sorry you got shit for that, but I loved it. Yes. Let's go into one that's gonna probably be. A little more controversial, mm-hmm, for sure. You know, because I think it has a competitor mm-hmm. that is loved to this day. You know, so yeah, we're gonna talk about the Kevin Costner history biopicy kind of thing, mm-hmm. Wyatt Earp, right? Comes out in '94. It's a year after the beloved Tombstone, right? Right. Which, <laughs> yep. It's one of those things that always weirdly sometimes happens still to this day in Hollywood where you'll have like uh, asteroid movie deep impact with with yeah. uh, Michael Bay one that came right. out right. Armageddon, and, Armageddon and all of all of these things or canine and Turner and Hooch that kind right. of shit. Yeah, right yeah yeah right and so yeah these these things happen apparently starting out as one original idea that yes. spawned into two because I guess Kevin Costner was wanted by the original writer of Tombstone as Wyatt Earp but when Costner started delving into the history of Wyatt Earp he saw this it's a great story before and past this element of time that you want to concentrate on which is the OK Corral the the Tombstone basically builds up to the famous shootout at the OK Corral and that's that's the anchor point and you don't go too far before it and you don't go too far after it right right and, and Kevin Costner is right in the fact that Wyatt Earp is a fascinating fucking character. Right. And it's almost, it seems like fiction when you re- right. know, know the real story about this guy. It doesn't right. seem like it's possible. He's like a legit superhero. Right, right. <laughs> like, that can't get hurt. Right. And, uh, yeah, and, it, and you know, I, I liked Tombstone when it came out. I thought it was right. fun and funny and all that stuff, but... I don't know. And I used to get in arguments with friends about that back at the time. Uh, um, Something about Wyatt Earp to me spoke to me more. I just, I found it more interesting, more in-depth, a little more realistic and more accurate. And I wasn't, I felt like the, all the clever and fun lines that come out of Tombstone, there's so many quotable lines like right. the, I'm your Huckleberry. And I got two guns, one for each of you and all that kind of shit and skin right. that smoke wagon and see what happens. That yeah. to me to me that's that's all fun and games, but it doesn't stand the test of time. Right. And I have an interest I have an actual hi- interest in history too. So right. actually finding out you know, you've heard the story of the OK Corral all you know, growing up your whole life. Right. Especially me growing up in Tucson 
where Tombstone is literally, you know, an hour down the, <laughs> right. an hour and a half down the highway. I've been there a few times and right. uh, seen the actual reenactment shootouts uh, that they do. Right. I found it very interesting just to delve deep and find out how the dude became this hard ass, badass motherfucker that he is. Right. Yeah, you see the history, and you see you see him before he, you know, he's this misfit that uh, you see his father and how he implements this uh, impassioned uh, thing of family and and law and, and law and everything. Because his dad was and, a lawyer, I think. Yeah. Right. He's played by Gene, Gene Hackman, Hackman, right? Right, yeah. right. And this is another one of those films, that, as we just spoke of, and that has a great cast of tons of people you're going to recognize. You got Bill Pullman in there. You got Tom Sizemore. You got, mm-hmm. you know, Dennis Quaid, who I love. I am dying of tuberculosis. <laughs> Everyone who knows me hates me. I sleep with the nastiest whore in Kansas. And every morning I wake up surprised. <laughs> surprised I have to spend another day in this pisshole world. Yeah, and that's the big debate right there. I mean, right. I don't know if we want to get into it right now, but Dennis yeah, Quaid plays um, Doc Holliday, the mm-hmm. infamous Doc Holliday. And, of course, Val Kilmer plays Doc Holliday in Tombstone. Right. So the portrayal of Doc Holliday in Tombstone, it's... The, one of the more funnier characters and right. it's you you know he's so he says so many badass lines that you can't help but love the guy plus right. it, the thing is is he's like he's val kilmer and his prime so he's this very good looking right fit and like i think we were talking about it before you were you were saying how they just basically put some dark shadow on his eye and missed his <laughs> right. face up and suddenly he has tuberculosis right but he still looks like fucking val kilmer he's good looking and right the reality is with doc holiday you want to know what the realistic portrayal is, go see Dennis Quaid's portrayal in it's way more realistic. It's way more true to fact. Right. And something that that kind of shit always, maybe it doesn't work for everybody. Right. But for me, when I know that it's grounded in reality, it just, it, it has legs. It has a better foundation and I can, absorb it more and totally because you can like you know you can do your wikipedia as you're reading along and going oh yeah look at that there (laughs) that shit actually did happen and he did Mm -hmm. for whatever reason whenever that happens i feel more validated in the work the piece of work and and oh yeah exactly and like i like i was saying before this story is so amazing you don't have to glam it up Mm -hmm. with fancy lines and all that stuff exactly oh totally so Uh, another thing about tombstone that work for me is that you cast Kurt Russell and I am a huge huge Kurt Russell fan mm-hmm. so I mean most of the time if he's in it I'm gonna love it if not like it except for Fast and Furious Tombstone's great it has a great yeah. cast too yeah and it's got a great cast you got Sam Elliott and everyone Michael in there Bean and, there's yeah. there's those rumors too that before filming began on Tombstone the original pick for Doc Holliday in that film was Willem Dafoe which I would have thought wow oh wow that would have been great yeah yeah, that's a good fit because because he was a sickly looking weird dude and, and right <laughs> well and but dennis quaid you know dennis quaid takes it and he loses a ton of weight ton of weight you know, like 50 something looks, pounds he, like, looks he looks really bad yeah. yeah he looks like he's about to die right he looks bad that was the other thing that bugs me too was big nose kate the woman they use in uh tombstone val kilmer's 
mm-hmm. love interest, Big Nose Kate. Mm-hmm. She is drop dead gorgeous. Oh, really? And Big Nose Kate is literally Big Nose Kate. She was a woman who had a big nose who was a, right. a sex worker. And yeah, so this the depictions and stuff. And, and in my opinion, you, they still keep that fun nature of Doc Holliday because that was him. He was a fun, but he it wasn't this quippy guy. Yeah. You know, you, you have this scene in Wyatt Earp, which is a great scene where Doc is coming out of, I believe, a saloon. It's morning. He stumbles out. He's coughing. And then uh, Wyatt is on the street walking by him, sees him for the first time that morning and says, Look like shit. Doc turns to him while wiping his mouth because he was coughing and says, Good morning to you too, sir. <laughs> yeah. And that's a gr- that's a that's a great way to not have to give him a quippy line, but you get his personality in that right. Whole thing. Well, and the and the thing the story goes is that he was an incredibly unlikable person. Right, Doc Holliday was. He wasn't charming like Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday. Right. that's not realistic. It's right. more f- maybe it's more fun for most people to watch, but. To me, the authenticity kind of stands out in Dennis Quaid's portrayal, where you're not quite as like you still admire the guy, but he's like uh, it's a more legitimate portrayal that you don't want to hang out with the guy and have beers, kind of right? Because he wasn't like that. That was it was notorious. It was notorious that Wyatt Earp was his only friend. Right. That's like less legit history. <laughs> and this plays that up so well. And the other yeah. thing you get too is when you cast someone like Kurt Russell in a part you want him I want him to be a badass you want yeah. him to have right. cool lines and you want him to be able to do this cool shit you tell him I'm coming and hell's coming with me you hear hell's coming with me whereas yeah. when you put Kevin Costner and I'm not putting Kevin Costner up on a big gigantic pedestal or anything but no. he comes off as quiet and stoic earnest and earnest yeah you, yeah you get this stuff and you see the growth of the character through the movie and why he's more stoic and why he makes the decisions that he does when you have the whole picture White Earp becomes more less of a action cool guy and more of a oh wow that guy's really interesting yeah right and so yeah you know this movie White Earp comes out it doesn't get a whole lot of recognition and it's in that time where like everything that Kevin Costner is going to come out doing starts to get completely ridiculed and the yeah. water world comes like two years water after world this the postman yeah. right and postman and all this stuff and They're I'm all not like like over budgeted and really long because why right. I remember was like it's like two and a half hours long right? right yeah it was pretty long I know that there was a four hour cut yeah something like that but I, I remember he did release on home video a uh, director's cut probably laser disc too and on video it was at two tier yeah V- VHS? Right. Yeah. Right. I remember that. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, Kevin Costner, he sees the potential of the character, goes off, makes his version, Tombstone beats them out, and it's a massive hit. And understandably so. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, well, look, Wyatt Earp comes out in June of uh, 94. That's summer of 94. You got this big drama dropped in the middle of summer popcorn movies. Of course it's not going to do well. I mean, Tombstone was released in 93 in December, and that had time to build up steam and everything. People were in the mood for it and everything. But you get into the summer of 94, this comes yeah, out, right. and the people who are watching it are you see the trailer for Wyatt Earp, and they're like, why are they doing this again? Whereas I remember thinking, oh, yeah. more of what I want to see from this guy that was interesting in that movie at Christmas. And it just didn't work out like that. And so the movie didn't do well. Yeah, because it's true. When he goes on this revenge streak. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> even before that and all of the, through the OK Corral shootout and everything, 
God knows how many fucking bullets fly past this guy. And this is, I'm not, we're not talking about the movie now. We're mm-hmm. talking about the the historical white earth. Right, right. Well, they have that scene in Tombstone where it slowed down and Kurt Russell's like, no. <laughs> yeah. How many fucking bullets <laughs> go fly at this guy? He never got hit once. Mm-hmm. Never injured once. Right. Everybody else around him got shot. Right, right. So, and he's hunting down the, the, the uh, cowboy gang after the fact. And, you know, they're shooting back. Never got hit once. Just mm-hmm. the yeah, and that story is coming from both sides of the fence. The people who were riding with Wyatt and the people he was yes, going after right. that lived through that incident. Both of them said, I don't know how he fucking <laughs> lived through that. He got shot point blank right, and they right. didn't hit yeah. him. It's fascinating. And and he was a, he yeah. definitely was, as he's portrayed by, I think, pretty well by uh, Kevin Costner, just kind of a stone-cold, stoic bastard. Right. You know? All business, right? Right. right. And, and, you know, and also Tombstone was, was tiptoeing around, understandably so. You don't want your audience to not like your main guy is that, you know, he was with the one girl. She had an addiction to opium and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And and he does. He leaves her for that other girl. And that's what really happened and stuff. So they tiptoe around that and try to give you in a reason of, like, she's being a bitch and all of this stuff. Right, and so right. he, he wants to leave her anyway. So you're still on Wyatt Earp's side. yeah? Right, right, right. And, and Wyatt Earp shows you, like, man, you know, that's kind of rough. <laughs> how he yeah. did that but at the same time they're not trying to glam it up for you they're showing well, you this is a man he's a you know and you look at it in the time period that you're you're watching the film and all of that they also tell his backstory that he had a first wife that he was madly in love with and right. basically endeared to and he was practicing to be a lawyer and all that shit and she got sick and died right and that's kind of like the the turning of his heart to stone. And right. He kind of went on this, um, I don't care if I die kind of yep. thing, uh, pursuits of dangerous stuff, you know, started, mm-hmm. started drinking and all that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, I think as far as the movie portrays, uh, Gene Hackman, his dad finds him when he's like at his lowest drunk and ready to die. And but that his dad basically says, pull your shit together kind of thing. Right. And then he, becomes this hard-ass man of the law sort of you know right i feel like uh, uh, the way it's portrayed uh, yes he was a man of the law and all that stuff but i think he was more about a man of prosperity right like he wanted to make his millions and and they show that they show him going through all of these different stages where he's he's doing buffalo hides and using the hides and all of this stuff makes the character more endearing to watching him as a man instead of a legend you know what i mean yeah and even after they get in tombstone and you know setting up businesses within the town and all that stuff yeah right there's i have an interesting story um so like i said i grew up in tucson right and uh my father was in the grocery store business and uh one of his assistant managers his name was morgan uh, and him, my dad and him became pretty good friends. So Morgan, as we know as the Earp family, is the youngest of the brothers. Well, it it turns and that, out... And that's Bill Paxton, all yeah. you Tombstone fans. Right, Bill Paxton, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so this guy Morgan, is, he was in Tucson, but it turns out he was from Tombstone. Oh, wow. And his dad was the sheriff of Cochise County. He's retired at that point. Wow. And he had, he had several sons. And they were all named after the Earps, though. So, 
and in the descending age, Virgil, uh, Wyatt, uh, Morgan, and obviously my dad's friend was Morgan, the youngest one. That's crazy. Yeah, so they had like direct lineage to, you know what I mean? As far as like their dad being the sheriff of Cochise County in, right. you know, as a predecessor to Wyatt Earp himself. My my dad's friend Morgan, his, like his dad is essentially, he's a retired sheriff, but he's essentially still justice of the peace. So that when my father and uh, my stepmother wanted to get married they asked him to perform the ceremony oh wow yeah so we you know did this whole kind of cowboy thing and <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know they were wearing old-timey western clothes and stuff and my stepmother asked me to wear wranglers and i was like probably 23 24 and very anti-country western <laughs> right so i was like uh no no i'm gonna go ahead and wear my guest jeans instead <laughs> She's like, well, but you'll wear ropers, won't you? Which are a type of cowboy boot, you know? And I'm like, sure, I'll wear those, yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we... You gave in a little. Yeah, I gave in a little. Yeah. We drove to Tombstone, you know, and to their Morgan's father's house and had the ceremony there. Wow. And he performed it because he's justice of the peace being ex-sheriff. Man, that's pretty awesome. Yeehaw! Unique connection that you actually have with that <laughs> To Wyatt Earp, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very far removed. But, well, far removed, but yeah. still a connection nonetheless. It's right. pretty cool. All right. You know, I'm a man that believes in the law. After your family, it's about the only thing you got to believe in. But there are plenty of men who don't care about the law. Men who will take part in all kinds of viciousness and don't care who gets hurt. Well, let's pour out a little uh, shot of whiskey <laughs> for, for good old Morgan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always, I always love this film. I still love this film. I think uh, last time I saw it was, was a while ago, probably yeah, about four here. years ago. But right. I still like it. I own it. And uh, it's a, it's unfortunate that it gets compared to Tombstone. something that it doesn't really rival in any way because it's a completely different entity. Right. It's just the same story. If, if it had come, I wonder if it had been five years later or five right. years prior, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you never know, I guess. It was more part of that sweeping epic that yep. Costner was doing at the time, you know, riding off of the success of Dances with Dances Wolves. Dances with Wolves, you know? yeah. Right. yeah. If you're going to break the fast, the least you can do is invite a friend. Not in the mood for talking, Doc. You know how it is with me. You don't have to do much talking when I'm around. That very same year, another movie that has endeared its way into Tim and my heart. Yeah, absolutely. That's a movie called Ed Wood. Yep. You control everyone's fate. You're like the puppet master. Uh, so I pull the strings. Yes, you pull the strings. <laughs> pull the strings. I like that. Starring Johnny Depp and directed by Tim Burton about the famous, or more should I say infamous director, <laughs> Edward D. Wood Jr. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. One considered the worst director of all time. I think we've had some people compete with him in the last oh, 15, yes, 10 years. Oh, yes, for you sure. Know, you know. For sure. For sure. That, um, that Vietnamese guy who did Birdemic, that's, that's one. 
<laughs> and Michael Bay, in my opinion. Uh, I don't know. Did you know anything about Ed Wood before you saw this movie? Yeah, I knew of the movies. Yeah. Okay. I knew of Did you, the, had you ever seen Plan 9 or anything like that? I had. I'd always, okay. you know, they always used to have those. I remember a long time ago, I think it was called It Came From Hollywood or something like that. Yep. It had all of the not ready for primetime players oh, from yeah. the first. Yeah. Teaching and Chong were, in it too. Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. right. And they were, they, and they brought up the Plan 9 from Outer Space and all that stuff. And Right. So I knew of it and I knew it was an infamous movie. And I think it was it, because of watching Ed Wood multiple times I said alright I need to finally sit down and watch this Edward right. movie confused by his great loss the old man left that home never to return again I lived in Houston uh, in a period of my life where I was I got into um zombie films and George mm-hmm. Romero films and stuff yeah. like that and of course there was an old guy that thought he knew every he was the IMDB of that store <laughs> yeah. and so uh, he would always be like hey have you ever heard of this Right. And so he, he mentioned Plan 9 and told me the premise of it, which was like aliens come back and resurrect the dead. And I was like, holy shit, that sounds amazing, you know? Right. And so I remember renting it and just being like, oh, this is just, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Like, I don't yeah. like it that right. much, you know? Yeah. And then years later... 94 yeah. comes and there's talk of, of Tim Burton being able to do this very important film that he'd been wanting to do for a long time about a director that he really liked and yeah. telling about it. I still did not make the connection of the two. I just was like, oh, wow, that sounds cool. It's about a you know passionate director who apparently wasn't all that great of a director kind of thing. And this was before, in my opinion. Yeah. Tim Burton and Johnny Depp had kind of jumped the shark and yeah. did their sellout stuff. Right. That was maybe five, four or five years later, I think. Right. They both kind of seized the moment and joined Disney's cult and yeah. away they went. Well, yeah. And, and just downward spiraled. But I think for me, this is yes. their best project together. Oh, yeah. I'm sure other people would say Edward Scissorhands or right. whatever. For, for me, Ed, it's Ed Wood. Like Johnny Depp fucking nails this role. Yep. What about Clint? When I was a headliner in Paris, audiences always liked it when I sparkled. No. Cat's eyes. No. Well, I'm going to need some antennae. No, you're the ruler of the galaxy. Show a little taste. It's not that he's doing a spot on... Well, exactly. I was yeah. just going to say that. He doesn't yeah. sound anything like the real Edward. Right. And he's doing a character... Right. A heightened version of him. Well, even the story, too, is taking... Yeah. It's not a beat-by-beat historical movie they kind of take some liberties actually quite a few liberties in a lot of spots you know right but it gets across the basics of yeah. of the edward character yeah uh, they downplay the bella lugosi find which right. i guess at when ed does find him he's not quite down in the dump. i think he did have an addiction problem but yeah he i don't think he was ever really in that i mean yes he was doing bad movies and stuff but he always had a an endearing following of fans till the day he died right and martin martin landau won an oscar for his portrayal right. of of uh, bella lugosi yeah. well keeping on this trend of what we're talking about with all of the movies we mentioned so far this movie has another ex- exceptional cast yeah yeah it does that a lot of them had already worked which i think is probably a good thing but a lot of them had already had previous work with tim burton so they knew the rhythms of how to work with him you have jeffrey right. jones in there playing right uh, allow me to introduce myself 
I am Criswell. Bill Murray plays the eccentric. Bill Murray is amazing in it. Oh, uh, my God. But it wasn't until I saw your movie that I realized I have to take action. Goodbye, penis. Please keep it down. Sarah Jessica Parker plays yes. the first Dolores, the girlfriend. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she's great, she's great in it, too. You have Vincent D'Onofrio playing... Um, Orson Welles. Even yeah. though he doesn't do the voice, he is playing him, looks stunningly yeah. like him. Yeah. I'm supposed to do a thriller at Universal. But they want Charlton Heston to play a Mexican. Being shot in black and white is genius. Apparently that was a big thing, but it makes the film so great. It, right. Watching it, you just get in the moment of it, the way it's lit and everything. It's a beautiful film. The woman who plays Vampira, too, she's been in other stuff. Yeah. You know? But, man, she looks just like that original actress, too. Yeah. You know what yep. I mean? The, the actual Vampira girl. Right. Yeah. And, uh... And so, yeah, going into this movie, not knowing that this was about that movie that yeah. I saw long before, and then seeing scenes from it and still remembering it and saying, oh, my God, that's the guy like that. And, <laughs> right. and it, what it did was it shifted my perspective of how to watch that film. Right. Meaning Plan 9 is what I'm talking about. So after seeing Ed Wood, Tim Burton's Ed Wood, and then seeking out uh, Plan 9, yeah. I was able to see it. Right. And, and watch it on its terms. I'm not saying it's a good movie by any means. No, right. It, Ed Wood's a bad director. Yeah. And uh, the people in it don't do a stellar job acting. But It was kind it, of the beginning of that bad movies that are fun to watch for being bad. You know what I mean? Right. Because I think it was, what was it, like 58 or 59? 59. It wasn't yeah. his first movie. Either. No, 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 no. It was, uh, Plan 9 was 59. Yeah. And then right. Glenn or Glenda, he had done that before and a few other films before that. But the thing that's infectious about him that I think what everyone talks about the real Ed Wood and what they capture in the movie is that he is extremely passionate and is a huge film fan and if he were alive today he would have a podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah probably right yeah because he wouldn't have the talent to right just like us we don't have the talent to make movies but we <laughs> right. have the talent to talk about them right yeah well one of the other interesting things about old Mr. Wood is he's also from my hometown of Poughkeepsie New York <laughs> right yeah that's right <laughs> but yeah I mean the passion alone, seeing how excited he gets, the, the things that you can tell that Tim Burton is passionate about making this movie and how yeah. he wants to make it, making it in the style of these old films from that era right. to tell the story of a man from that era, I think is a brilliant thing. It also it checks off a thing on my list of things that I love was I love movies about movies that are showing how movies are made. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like yes. Hail Caesar and Chaplin and Bowfinger and all of these adaptations. Even the first part of like a, a, the Aviator film, right? Right. It, the, I love that shit. I love watching that process of, of creative people being creative or non-creative people trying to be creative. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we're gonna be working together? Really? Worst film you ever saw? Well, my next one will be better. Hello. Hello. Like we were saying, Johnny Depp gives this kind of like a sincere. Earnest, like, uh, earnest, yeah. Again, once again, earnest, but like this, like overly optimistic, yeah. Kind of a very charismatic uh, right. loser kind of thing, where even in the face of failure, he's, you know, trying to keep it up. Or you know, yeah, he has that tone in his it's, voice. You know? It's hard to not like him. It's hard. Right. That makes it hard to not like him. Even when when you realize he's not doing the greatest things, it's still hard to not be on the guy's side. And yeah. and and Johnny Depp's, you know, at this time, Tim Burton 
it said it best when he was describing uh, Johnny Depp's acting ability and his style of work as a movie star. He basically said he's a character actor in a leading man's body. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is back in a time when he was challenging himself still and doing a lot of very interesting roles yeah. back then. Yeah. We gotta mention, though, we gotta mention that this is one of the most successful uh pulling of a professional wrestler and using him in a movie (laughs) as George George the Animal Steel is playing the guy who was a wrestler pulled into a movie Tor Johnson right and he's he's so good in it he's so good in it, it yeah. I, I take George the Animal Steel over the rock any day <laughs> <laughs> or John Cena <laughs> oh man yeah Tor uh, Mr. Johnson did you ever fancy the notion of becoming an actor not good looking enough well I think you're quite handsome. I adore this. One, I think the other reason that it works for us, if you listen to some of our other past episodes, we also have a very high fondness for science fiction and oh. monster movies of the 1950s. Right. And this movie is kind of a love, you know, Tim Burton himself is a love letter to that genre. Yeah. And, and this movie is a very specialized love letter to that genre as well. Oh, totally. And I think that's why it probably works for us a lot more. You know, I I know other people like this movie, and it did, yeah. but it's kind of forgotten about. And I, I I know in a lot of conversations with just layman people, non moviegoers or whatever, it's never remembered or mm. heard of, or nope. you know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, even if people are talking about Johnny Depp movies or Tim Burton movies, yeah. this one is completely forgotten about. Right. And and yeah, so you know all of the approaches of of how Tim Burton wanted to tell the story in black and white, as I mentioned, and all that stuff, and then all of the choice is that Depp does with the character as he says, you know, he's taking a little bit of the voice of the Tin Man from from yeah. Wizard of Oz and a little bit of Ronald Reagan and a little bit of that, you know, and you can you hear that and it sounds like you're listening to a recipe of something that yeah, I can hear that. <laughs> I yeah, yeah, yeah. I can take I can taste a little bit of the Ronald Reagan. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yuck. If you watch Glenn or Glenda, which I have, right. Ed Wood stars in that movie <laughs> right. and, uh, as Glenn or Glenda. And he, because he was a man who was struggling with uh, being a transvestite. And, right. um, and he wanted to kind of represent his culture, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. The, right. Try to destigmatize that kind of thing, even in the 1950s, which right. was never going to happen. Can't even imagine. Can't even yeah, imagine. Yeah, never would have happened. Yeah. So you get to hear and see what the real Ed Wood is like uh, to an extent. You right. know what I mean? I mean, granted, he is acting in the movie, but right. I, don't, I don't think he's a good enough actor that he's very far removed from himself. But his right. voice is very different, and, and his talk is, you know, he's not right. the same. But let's just say for the moment that I'm afraid to tell you, I'm afraid I'd lose you. I mean, also, just to highlight it just for a minute, it's Martin Landau's performance in it. He won the Oscar for it and everything. It's so minute, yeah. brilliant little performance. He nails the accent. He's so great in this movie. They also, in the movie, comment <laughs> on the little rivalry between Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff and that whole little scene that they have in the movie. Right. How dare that asshole bring up Karloff? 
You think it takes talent to play Frankenstein? It's all on makeup and then glunting. Bella, I agree 100%. And I mean, quite honestly, that whole rivalry actually was a thing. Stories are told about it anyway. <laughs> right, there was right. the rivalry between the two back in the day because they came yeah. from the Universal Monster thing. And, and this Karloff was a little more seasoned actor. Yeah. And the one thing that Bella had against him was he couldn't shed that accent, which made him it made it difficult for him to find work as other characters. Right. I mean, they do both kind of get typecasted into horror roles. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, Karloff, he was just versatile. Yeah. He, that yeah. was the biggest difference between the two. Aside from the accent with Lugosi, yeah. that, he just sounded like Dracula right, in right, every right. single film he did. I feel like, too, for we're men of an, uh, middle age, we'll yeah. say, right? Yeah, so, yeah, totally. So the younger viewers who might be a little more social, into the social wokeness and all that stuff, I think this movie has a good place for that because what it's doing is giving credence and representation to people of um, mixed sexualities and of course the gender roles and all that stuff and and trying to form a community in in a time period in the 50s where that shit was not allowed. And so I I feel like this movie does have a place even in the modern era right right now and can be endeared for that. Yeah, very relevant. Yeah, for sure. Relevant, yeah. Yeah, totally. That cardboard headstone tipped over. This graveyard is obviously phony. Nobody will ever notice that. Filmmaking is not about the tiny details. It's about the big picture. The big picture? Yes. So, here's the gist. You want to talk to us? You want comments? You want reviews? All this horse shit? How could they not, really? Instagram and Facebook, we are mm. at TFTFP Podcast. If you want to tweet us or twit us or whatever it is out there, yeah, you just have to go podcast TFTFP. Yeah, because the other one was taken. Yeah. And <laughs> send us a gosh darn glorious little email. No dick pics, please. Uh, uh, Tim, at, don't, uh, don't tell him what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Care of Derek. No, the oh. email The email address is uh, tftfppodcast at gmail.com. Glorious. And we also have a spectacular little Patreon page that should be in the description wherever you downloaded this podcast. If you go there, you can get extra content. And just for half the price of a cup of coffee, you can get our warm voices poured into your ear freshly brewed it's just amazing it's really nice and we're so much better for you than coffee too we don't make you shit as much well i wouldn't go that far too <laughs> like subscribe <laughs> and review us and make it positive right i mean you can be negative about other things just don't mention us with the negativity we're, we're delicate over here i got a thin skin from one movie about a zombie movie hmm. <laughs> to a zombie movie. Yeah, what a coincidence. Now, this movie gets no respect. Right. Well, I, I mean, don't think. You know, it has a cult following. Yeah. It does have a cult following. Yeah, within the zombie culture, it has a big cult following. Mm-hmm. But outside of the zombie culture, and I'm talking about the people who are just passive zombie fans that like things like, oh, I like Walking Dead 28 Days Later or Dawn of the Dead remake or World War Z or something like that. They aren't responsive or don't know a whole lot or don't seem to appreciate Return of the Living Dead. One question, Frank. This guy screaming in here, you sure he's a dead cadaver? 
Watch open the door and find out. No, it's all right, Frank. I'll take your word for that. Return of the Living Dead is kind of like it's near and dear to my heart because it's very much like what American Werewolf in London did for horror movies as far as like adding a ton of levity and humor and comedy to it. It's almost like a black comedy. Return of the Living Dead is a funny fucking movie. Yeah. Me. It cracks me up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very tongue in cheek. doesn't take itself too, te- too seriously. Right. But yet it still has really great practical effects, too. This is one of those films that, you know, Return of the Living Dead comes out in 1985, 17 years after Night Night of the Living Living Dead. Dead. Seven years after Dawn of the Dead. Now, both of those are from George Romero. And George Romero has a very specific kind of zombie and a very specific set of rules for zombies. And so what happened when he does Night of the Living Dead one of the people to help him make that named John Russo, that movie comes out and they make an error about putting the, the copyright bug on it. And that's why everyone can do a, a night of the living dead movie. You don't need any rights to it. Cause that uh-huh. movie made him, made the mistake of not putting the copyright bug on, on the title card. And so everything was open. So the rights went out the window on that thing. So George Romero was able to do, his version of a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, which was in 78, Dawn of the Dead. And then he right. does his follow-up to that, which is Day of the Dead, this same year that opens like a month before. Return of the Living Dead. Return of the Living Dead is John Russo, a guy who did Night of the Living Dead and helped Romero write Night of the Living Dead. It's his version of the sequel right. to Night of the Living Dead. And right. so he gets to take it and, and do what he wanted to do, which was, one, make the zombies more graphically deteriorating and give you a reason why they're coming back but also knowing that he's giving you a reason and if you play it serious it's going to be taking badly right apply comedy to it and that'll be the glue that keeps everything together because right if they're not taking it seriously, you shouldn't be taking it seriously. Right, either, you right. know what I mean? And so it's a great blend of doing that. But not just that. You get this guy who wrote Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien from 1979. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He comes in and he directs. This is his first feature. He also spiffs up the script a little bit. So a lot of usually a lot of hands in the cookie jar is not a good thing for a film. In this film, it was a really good thing for the film right. because everyone had a perspective on where it should go. And being that zombie films were becoming more of the norm, right. this one had a different enough spin to help it stand out. And in a yeah. year where it's coming up against a George Romero film, Day of the Dead, this one beats it. It makes right. more money. George's right. bombs and and Return. Better. I respect Night of the Living Dead and the, the other and the other ones, but there is something about that they're just wearing facial makeup right. for the most part, and then you know showing some blood. Whereas this, there's there's animatronics involved, uh, you know, because right. there's some are deteriorated to the fact of skeletonism, you know, and right. th- there is the, there is a little bit more of a faster motion thing, which I yeah. think is what's contended is one of the contesting things. I don't think it's too, atta- what's that one? World War Z. It's not like they're, no God, no. it's not they're like they're making running. mounds and like ants yeah, and right. shit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or the, uh, what's the one with Killian Murphy 28 days later, Yeah, 28 yeah. days later and stuff like yeah. that. This, this one gives you a reason for the outbreak and it even connects it a little 
Tonight of the Living Dead. Right. And so those are the things I remember seeing this as a kid and that opening scroll that says this is based on a true story you open that just like that i don't you know as an adult you get giggles out of it as a kid and i saw this movie i was like oh shit (laughs) what the fuck am i getting into exactly (laughs) yeah right right well and then of course the you know all the the cast of misfits that we're following in this um It's funny, it's all, you know, I'm noticing all these movies outside of Wyatt Earp, really. They're all misfit movies. <laughs> they're right. all, like, well, fans of misfits. I guess Doc Holliday is kind of a misfit, so. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, we're following, uh, it's 1985, right? And it's kind of like when the punk scene is kind of becoming, even in reality, it's becoming a bit of a caricature of itself. Right. You know, with... You have to, in order to be a punker, you have to have the mohawk right, or right. the leather jacket with studs and all that stuff. And um, that's what we're following is this band of punks. And uh, one of their friends goes to work at a medical supply store. And so right. they go hang out at the cemetery next door, waiting for him to get off work. And of course, the disaster ensues. Hey, these things don't leak, do they? Leak? Hell no. These things were made by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So yeah, and uh, this the one punker dude that goes and works over at the medical office is working with um, the longtime employee of the place, uh, Frank, right. who's played by uh, what's his name again? James Karen. James Karen, you might recognize him as the uh, the boss <laughs> of Craig T. Nelson from uh, uh, Poltergeist. Yeah. He's showing him the ropes and all that stuff. And he's the one that says, hey, you want to see something? You know, and he takes right. him down to the basement of the medical supply. And then the barrel is the old military barrel with the glass top on it is that zombie that's inside there. I always thought that was a great effect, too, because the body inside the barrel, we see through a glass on top of yeah. it that it's melting. Right. It's melting away as this toxin inside that barrel is leaking out into that room and then slowly out of the building. Yeah, it's the gas within it, right? Right. It's given, They gave a name to some toxin that the government created, and that happened, and that's what the real story of what Night of the Living Dead is based on kind of thing. And yeah. It's a fun approach if you're going to do a sequel. It's a, it's a really cool way of one giving a reason and two it's an outlandish enough reason that once they mention it it doesn't hang on you too long it just they mention it this is what happens and then boom you're off into the story yeah but yeah i remember seeing this movie and being really weirded out by it again i was pretty young when i saw first saw it but all the stuff that happens after the toxin gets out mm-hmm. like the dogs the split in half dogs barking and stuff ugh. yeah right mr the graveyard out there's full of people coming out of the ground what do you mean out of the ground mr there's a hundred of those things out there The movie does a really great job of setting up the tone that it's going to use and sets up what you're going to see, basically, with the toxin spilling out of the building. Right, and what we don't see is the guy in the tank whose face we saw pressed up. He's probably, for me, the most quintessential zombie I've ever seen in my life. He's called the Tar Man. Right. And it's because being in that liquid all this time, his skin was like this black, putrefied skin. And when he gets oxidized or whatever after breaking right. the after the lid comes off he it basically melts down off of him and it's this glossy black skin right. and like the the top of his the cranium of his skull is exposed in this yeah. kind of orangey white bone material yeah. and the, the one thing i think probably one of the you know the more traditionalist zombies uh, uh aficionados probably don't like about this movie is the fact that the zombies can talk right yeah Rescue 
10 and what you're talking about too this tar man zombie who again i totally agree with you this is one of the best zombies i think put on screen yeah because he's scared i remember being terrified of that character when i was a kid and i first saw this and so to see that character how it goes on to be if nothing else is remembered about this movie you can always see that zombie on t-shirts and right. all of this stuff right. so that is something that that transcended this film and became a, somehow became a part of pop culture even though this movie hasn't really officially been a part of the vernacular of people who like zombie movies that it is mentioned anyway that I can find. Yeah, and they also they create their own lore in the fact that uh, the zombies are attracted to live brains. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I, th- I feel like in other movies they're just eating to eat. Yeah, they don't eat brains specifically. They just eat. Right. They'll eat you no matter what. Right. Yeah. So the whole more brains that comes from this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The, them eat, yeah, zombies eating brains, which is what's known by a ton of people who know zombie movies now. That stems from this movie. Yep. And they even have that part with the the bisected woman who is right. only half. You know, she's giving you the reason of why they need brains. Why do you eat people? Not people. Brains. Brains only. Yes. Why? The pain. Decaying from death hurts. It's painful, and the 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 brains give them a temporary relief from the pain. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen this movie countless times, and I I still remember the very first time I saw it, like what the fuck are you going to do with these things? Because they have the old thing of, well, hey, in Night of the Living Dead, all you got to do is shoot them in the head, and, they do, and then they do that, and it right. still doesn't work. They're still coming after you. So right. there's no way to kill these things except to take them down to ash, to where right. there's nothing left. Right. And so that's another really interesting thing that the movie does. And I, I'm a huge fan of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. I love all those movies. I love George Romero. He's like one of my favorite filmmakers just because of how prolific he was yeah. with very little. And the but, creep show movies. Oh, yeah, I love the Creepshow movies. I even love his movie, Martin, that he did. I love that movie. And the the fact that he and his team created this genre with Night of the Living Dead is amazing. And he launched some pretty serious careers, too. Right. uh, And so... Greg Nicotero and... uh, Right. Tom Savini. Tom Savini, right. Yeah, and all of these things. So... So that said, this is one of those zombie movies that will always be endeared to my heart as yeah. one of my favorite zombie movies. Just because of, one, it ups the ante on just how horrible this stuff is. And right. two, it also adds the levity that the other movies don't really give you. Yeah. It's played in a way that where you're still having fun with it as you're going along. Yeah, you're still laughing at it, just just like an American Werewolf. You know, right. it's still a funny movie. Yeah, right. It's a it's a very for me anyway. It's a very successful uh, genre combo of comedy and horror. You know? Right, which is hard to do. Yeah, unfortunately, this is one of those movies, too, that sets the the precedent that it does it so well by blending comedy and the horror aspect and gore and all of this stuff that when you try to do a sequel to this movie, it's lopsided because then they're going way more comedy. Right. And it's 
awful. And just because you have comedy, comedy, and throw in gore doesn't yeah. balance it. None of the sequels to The Living Dead, The Return mm. of the Living Dead, are any right. good. None of no. them. None of them. Nope. And, and I know that there's lovers out there for the the second one to this, but I still don't like. I just yeah, I don't give. It, I don't care what they're saying. Yeah, it's grading to me. Yeah, it's grading. This is our show, and we can say it. <laughs> right, so we're right. not recommending any of those but the first one. The first one is so good, and it's right. so much fun. And yeah. uh, and well, uh, not just that, but like you said, the punk rock thing could have been very overexposed by that point because you had Class of 1984 and Repo Man and Driller Killer and all of those films. Of yeah, time. right. You know, right. And all of those things where the punk rockers are the bad guys and all this stuff and in this you see them as the victims to these zombies that are yeah. going on but what it also does is this movie I will always remember how great I thought the, the soundtrack mixed with the movie it does yeah it's so good Yeah. The do you want a party and all yeah. that stuff comes right. the way it comes in and introduced in certain things and, and then even when like when the when the, so so when they do decide to cremate the cadaver that they cut to pieces and still jiggling around yeah. what it ends up doing is releasing the gas in the air over to the cemetery right right and they're doing the, that music they're playing is like this kind of like this drum beat like yeah The, like a church bell going like dong yeah. every so often it's like ooh here we go yeah. <laughs> you yep. know and then all the you can see all the uh, it's like a re- almost like a Spider-Man replay of all the uh, <laughs> yeah the zombies coming out of the graves <laughs> right you know? yeah you know I love that and I mean you have to say Lene Quigley should get a big shout out thank you so much for doing what you did for this film because it warmed my heart as a youth and still warms my heart every time I see this film yeah right right <laughs> But yeah, I mean, and it's got another one of those movies that has this big cast, that, and all of them are really great. You got Clue Gallagher, uh, uh, Gulliger as Bert, the owner of yeah. the warehouse. Yeah. And, and then the the guy who's over the mortuary where they yeah. have to go into, and his name is Ernie in the film. It's Don Kafka, very well known face if you know any like as a character actor and stuff. Right. But I remember right. loving that character as a kid too. Yeah. <laughs> He's the yeah. buggy eyed. You can really see he's freaked out and stuff. Yeah. He's got one of those people that has permanent like dark shadows under his eyes so right. he always looks stressed out yeah right I mean we could talk about that movie for hours but I think we are beating a dead horse and just giving a review now so let's move on shall we right right do you ever fantasize about being killed never This next pick is probably going to be quite controversial because it's hated upon by a number of people, especially the people who like this particular film series. But I love it. So it also has a new coming director. This was his first film that we would know. Who grew up to be (laughs) one of our favorite directors of all time. Yeah, which is who's David Fincher. And we're talking about Alien 3. From 1992. Was there an alien on board? Yes. It was with us all the way. 
Now this is, just to put it in perspective of the time, it's coming out. Alien 3 is Fox's, what they're going to introduce to the summer of 92 that has Lethal Weapon 3, mm-hmm. Batman Returns, like giant films. And so mm-hmm. they're saying, well, in 86 we had Aliens, which was a huge movie. So, mm-hmm. you know, that from 86 on all the way up till 92, they're trying to get an Alien 3 going. Right. And so unfortunately... One, it's released in the summer where everyone wants popcorn, fun, action picture kind yeah, of things. Right. And this is not an answer to that kind of right. what craving. It kinda, it's <laughs> returning to his roots as far as the original Alien movie and right. going away from the James Cameron uh, action extravaganza that he turned. Right. He took a, it's, it's just like he did with The Terminator. Right. James Cameron turned... Terminator 2 into a fun action sci-fi. Right. And that's kind of what he did when he took the reins from Ridley Scott on the Alien with Aliens. He mm-hmm. took a, a, a straight up sci-fi horror movie and made right. it a, a sci-fi action movie. Yep. So Alien 3 goes back to the roots of being more of a horror film than a sci-fi horror film than than an action movie. What Alien 3 immediately does like within the first I'd say what like five to ten minutes of the film is that happy feeling you get by the end of Aliens with yeah. you know you got Newt as yeah. a little girl and you got Ripley and there's hope and Michael mm. Bean's there right, and there yes. there there's hope it strips that away immediately yeah and a bunch of flash cuts in the yeah. while the credits are going yeah some of your heroes from the the last film are gone <laughs> yep immediately. <laughs> Yeah. So it's got, we already know we're heading down a dark road. Yeah. Right. This is a maximum security prison, and you have no weapons of any kind? We have some carving knives in the abattoir, a few more in the mess hall, some fire axes scattered about the place, nothing terribly formidable. That's all. We're on the honor system. And it does nothing but continually head down that dark road. And again, as I was saying to you before this, that this movie, what it does is it it doesn't go back to there's a bunch of aliens as a threat. You're back to one alien as the threat. But when you're in a place where there are no guns or no weapons to fight it, one is way more than enough. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the premise of the whole setup, I I think it's a great bookend to the story. I do too. And I think it just got a situation of fucked up funding and juggling around um, directors and all that stuff. And then, you know, it ends up in the hands of David Fincher, who I think... You know, I rewatched it today. I hadn't seen it in decades. And um, was genuinely surprised at how much I did enjoy it. And I thought it was, story-wise, it was very fitting. Yep. It was dark, but it's a dark story. You know what I mean? It, yeah, no, and it's unfortunate for David Fincher, too. This is his first film that he does. You know, yeah. before this, he's doing commercial work and stuff. Before that, he's doing, like, helping with visual effects and stuff and, like, mm-hmm. Return of the Jedi and shit like that. So then he starts his own uh, production company to do commercials. This is his first picture. It's not a pleasant experience. They've already dumped a ton of money into pre-production on Alien 3. So Fox is breathing down his neck. And any decision that he makes as a creative person, they're like, why do you want to do that? So immediately, this 
is not a fun experience for him. He doesn't like the film. It's not the film that he set out to make. And he kind of disowns it. He, right, right. he just he doesn't want anything to do with it. But since that whole thing and they did the box set and stuff, they've went back to his original template of what he wanted to do with the film and tried to cut it to more of how he wanted it. But I think even the theatrical version, I remember responding very, very much to the theatrical version because it's, like you said, a great bookend to the two-arc structure we already got. And like I said, yeah, it just they create an interesting world, mm-hmm. I think, with this, is this um, you know, all-male prison planet. These guys that stayed behind, you know, right. became these like kind of religious zealots and living by a code. They're all like terrible men, uh, rapists, murderers. Right. There's no threats for them. And, and then Ripley, she's now uh, almost infected these guys' group <laughs> in right. more than one way. She's infected it with her presence being a woman and uh, uh these guys are all tempted by her yeah they haven't seen women in a very long time and mm-hmm. they're already dangerous men right but she handles herself you know she's pretty yeah. ice cold and hardened by this point because she'd been through the so much shit right the events of the first two movies right well, right and the fact that she's lost newt you know is really right. just kind of solidified fuck my life sucks yeah and plus, she knows the company that sent her out here in the second one. <laughs> yeah. It, and owns all of these companies now. They even own the prison planet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that she knows that they don't want anything. No good is going to come from what they want yeah. out of this thing. So if this thing is still around, it either has to be terminated and killed before they can get to it or the world's fucked. Right. So what the premise is, is Wayland, this corporation that's always looming in the background of all of these alien uh, xenomorph-based movies. Um, right. The idea is, is they're wanting to use this organism as uh, bio-warfare, right? Right. But I feel like Ripley, having experienced this shit personally on multiple occasions, knows that there's no way that the Wyland group is going to be able to control this in the way they think they are. Right. You know, they're, they're coming in at, uh, with a, this gung-ho human, right. like he does again in Avatar, you know, that same thing. We're just going to, you know, go in there and use our human brute force and manage this shit, and it ends right. up backfiring on them. You, right. There's kind of an interesting comment on faceless corporation thing, yeah. you know, too, that we deal with in a modern America ourselves yeah and and the other thing too is a lot a lot of there's a lot of criticism too about how you know you have ripley's arc is she doesn't want to go back in the second one because she's dealt with this thing and why would you want to go back into that horrible situation kind of thing this one is again putting her in a a situation where she has no control over it yeah she's got to deal with it right she's got to deal with this thing and so if you're you have to have ripley in another alien movie right you have to do something like this instead of have her recruit herself again to go back and do it again which who would do that and right. so one that's an interesting thing to put her in and then two at the end of aliens yeah. she's fighting for her life and the life of who she cares about on the team right. and she saves the them people but in this movie her sacrifice is spoiler alert yes right. she has to she's infected the right. face grabber got her on the beginning of the ship she doesn't find that out until like th- you know two thirds into the movie that she's she's got one in her chest ready to explode right and what's interesting there is the uh, medical the scan, scan uh, right. it immediately that information gets sent back to earth to the Wyland Corp and they like 
they double down and say we got to get the fuck out there immediately to get right. her because we know she's this she has this thing right and, um, and so the, all of the the things set into motion in the film feel very natural and not right. forced like things right. happen if it has to be a third film and this is the way it goes this gives her a, a, a unique arc instead of just giving her the same beats to hit over and over again right. and her sacrifice is not only doing it for her she's doing it for like to save the world, the world basically, <laughs> basically yeah. yeah you know and so it, it's very interesting the things it does and then this is another movie in the long line of the movies we've already done that has a very great cast yeah yes right we got all fellow re- regular fincher characters showing up here yeah yeah so I, good old holt mccallany he shows up again and he's a fincher regular mine hunter yeah he's and, in uh, fight club Fight club right you got papa lannister in it yeah the <laughs> lannister himself yeah. but he's much younger charles dance he's fantastic in it of course, her and Ripley and Michael Bean's character had this rapport in the film. You saw a little bit of attraction there, but you don't really see that side. There's no time to explore anything like that in that film because right. it's an action film that has to keep its pace up. You know? that's, it. well, that's one thing I was going to say, too, is watch the director's cut of Aliens if you're right. ever going to watch it because it has the extra 15, 20 minutes footage right. or whatever that makes the movie make way more sense. Yep. And so this movie is able to explore a little bit more of her humanistic needs and her attraction. You know, right. they get to that part the, between her and Charles Dance where she's yeah. just like, you know, do you like me kind of thing. And it's weird to see this character you've seen in these other movies explore that kind of thing because you're just like, whoa, you know. But it's cool. Beca- to me, it's cool because you see her vulnerability as a mm-hmm. human and her needs as a human. And right. Very direct. That's again that uh, that does nothing to me, but expand that character and give that character growth, which I, I love stuff like that. And then you have yeah. Charles Dutton in the film, right. who's great. I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing, so I say fuck that thing. Let's fight. Yeah, he's so good. He's so strong. You know yeah. what I mean? Like his personality is just yep, no fucking nonsense, man. And so all of these things, you got a great cast. Uh, in my opinion, you've got a, a really interesting story that if you have to do an Aliens three movie, this I I wouldn't want an Aliens part two. Right. I would want this. I, I agree. The reality is, is that this organism is a death machine, right? Right. The way that you bookend it with everybody pretty much has to die. Right. Makes sense. That's the only, you know what I mean? As far as right. like the complete three-part arc of this right. story, it, I, I think it works. And this movie it was not successful. No, no. It was, it was very much hated because of how bleak it was yeah. which is something that follows Fincher around a bit yeah the bleakness did repelled people they did right. not like the darkness of it and you took away all hope and whereas yeah i mean and i kind of remember probably not liking this movie when it first came out you know oh, okay not getting it you know i was like eh. right being a more mature uh, immature film viewer and all that stuff not really putting the pieces together and and right but re-watching it today i definitely i i see why you wanted this on the list and i definitely agree it, it is underrated and you know it does suffer you can tell it suffers from uh budgetary cuts dated effects for sure the, the effects in aliens which is years earlier is way yeah. better than the, the effects in this for sure the close-up animatronic 
stuff of the xenomorph is good right it's very good yeah. and it looks good but then all of the full figure distance running shots of it i like and i like the idea too yeah that it, it infected a dog this time therefore right. it has more a four-legged stance which you know right. that makes sense to gives me. it a little bit more of a, a unique movement that right. you you don't see and so i appreciate that yeah but the, unfortunately the effects they they use something which i guess fincher was pushing for cgi at the time they didn't want to go that way so they used uh, a different version called go motion mm -hmm. and um you can see the the issues with it. It looks pasted in, you know. Yeah. There's like a heavy dark. It like the color matching is off. Right. Whereas like the creature is always way lighter than the shit around it, and therefore right. it that, as a result there's this big heavy black outline around it, and it it right. looks basically added in after the fact. Yeah. Right. But this is one of those movies that, in my opinion, if you want to know that if a movie can be divorced from the filmmaker, it can still have its fingerprints all over. Because when you watch this movie, you're like, yeah, this is a David Fincher film. Yeah, right. Yep. The way the, the camera movements. and the Camera know. movements, the little insert shots of weird things, but important things that you yeah. don't realize you're seeing until after you see it. All of this stuff is really, really well done. And, and, and just, it's one of those movies, again, I remember seeing it in the theater in the summer of 92 and really liking it for not being bubblegum. Right. Well, kudos to you for being smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, the rescue team gets here in four or five days. Six tops. You open the door. Go in those smart guns. Kill it. If they don't want to kill it. They get back. It's a very interesting character arc for Ellen Ripley, you know. Yep, for sure. Groundbreaking as putting a, a, a female lead, you know, in 1979 in the original Alien. It was right. unheard of, you know. Right. And then you get to 1992, and she's because of this movie at the time anyway it was one of the highest paid female actors around wow, and she's yeah. great in it she's great yeah. yeah she is good yeah yeah i think she's an underrated actress herself yeah i do too i think what attracted me to ellen ripley was that she she went from someone who sort of believed that the world was a certain way to someone who couldn't believe in anything anymore um and went from someone who's sort of a thinking person to someone who's kind of an instinctive animal Well, let's go to our last one. We're going to end up on a... We mentioned it a little bit earlier, but we're, we're going to talk about... Cable Guy! This is another one of those movies that really missed the mark for a lot of people. And, yeah. and, and again, I think, like, taking into consideration where this comes in, 1996 is when this movie comes yeah. out. Right. And it's coming after huge hits for Jim Carrey yeah, which are monstrous things and he's implementing this weird comedy that he had on In Living Color and so Ace Ventura and The Mask and you know all of these things yeah I think by this time 96 yeah he'd already done The Riddler and Batman Forever and so right. he's mega star right and and he's mega star on the crutch of being Jim Carrey Right, yeah. And not that he isn't that in this movie. It's just skewed to a little right. darker. Why should I help you? I gave you free cable. 
what have you ever done for me? No, it's a, it's a dark twist on, on that personality. And I think he plays it masterfully. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. The, I still, you know, I'm always a little, he's okay in it. Matthew Broderick. Right. He has this, he, there's something about him. The only thing that he ever really nailed for me is Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller, right. Yeah. Everything else he's kind of like, well, okay. Could, it probably could have been somebody else and been a little bit better. Right. Can I get a knife and pork? There were no utensils in medieval times. Hence, there are no utensils at medieval times. Would you like a refill on that Pepsi? There were no utensils, but there was Pepsi? Dude, I've got a lot of tables. I think it's a Ben Stiller film, yeah, right? Yeah, Ben Stiller directs it, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, Judd Apatow is the producer, I right. believe, or, or part, maybe part of the writers or something like that. Because him and Judd and, and Ben had a, a long-standing friendship, right. you know, and uh, worked together quite a bit. And, you know, they worked together on his sketch show right the ben stiller show and all that stuff and um and plus you got you got jim carrey who is apparently coming in on this kind of late in the game well you know i, I, I always heard your name associated with that yeah i was associated with it but then i had to do black sheep because i had a commitment at paramount to do uh two movies tommy boy and then they had another one so i had to do black sheep anyway so i couldn't do cable guy but anyway jim carrey could have taken it anytime he wants but he's a great guy i liked it they kind of changed it a little bit um because the regular the, the original script wasn't as, as as dark as that it was just uh he was just kind of annoying and so i go because i think it was supposed to be chris farley yeah by the time jim comes into it he's having to you know he really takes on the darkness of the character dyes his hair super jet black and right. brings that thing with the lisp that he does which is great and, yeah yeah and reality isn't father knows best anymore it's a kick in the face on a saturday night with a steel toe grip kodiak work boot and a trip to the hospital bloodied and bashed reconstructive surgery it's so interesting and i, I really don't th I, I i think the, it would have been too bubblegum if chris farley had been in it it would right. have lost its edge right J jim carrey is what cr creates the edge in this movie that makes you uncomfortable and right i enjoy the uncomfortability that he creates yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean i think it's and also it's that thing that already in his comedy and for that time of course it's he's, he's very outrageous very visual yeah. Uh, uh, yeah visually outrageous but some of the things he says is ace ventura or whatever is really yeah. outrageous and out there so when he's playing a darker character like this not that this is super dark or anything but when he's playing obsessive and stuff like that that outrageousness can seep into that and you're like oh shit what is he gonna do you know you, right, you start right, to right. wonder how how far it's gonna go He's basically, he is Ace Ventura if Ace Ventura wasn't competent and right. was super insecure and right. uh, had a troubled childhood kind of thing. He's right. kind of that, it's like the the darker cousin to <laughs> right. Ace Ventura, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Clingy and, and strange. And, and I yeah. think that, you know, this at the time when he does this film also is the first time Jim Carrey had ever got that $20 million paycheck. So that right. hangs over the film like this dark cloud. Right. Right, yeah, where people yeah. go in with expectations and say, well, if he got $20 million, he better really bring it. And be, the, because he didn't bring what they expected. What they expected. Right. He does bring it. Right. He, I mean, the movie is what it is because of him. Yep. You know. Owen Wilson's in it, too. Yeah, remember? Owen Wilson, yeah. Jack Black's in it. Like, all Jack of these Black, people are. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's all the people from the, from yeah. the Ben Stiller show. Yeah. And, uh, 
Yeah, I think this is where Judd Apatow meets his wife, too, because she's the love interest. Yeah, Leslie Mann, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Leslie Mann. But yeah, yeah, it becomes this target that year of just shitting on about how bad it was, and if this is what we're paying these actors this much money, that becomes this focal point so much so that it's just like, well, are you watching the movie or are you judging the yeah. budget? You know what I mean? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think people are missing it. Yeah. They're, I mean, it's supposed to be a comedy of a little bit of mental illness. Yeah. You know, we're talking about mental illness and, and totally, and, uh, you know, bringing light to it in a time where it's, you know, right. Very much un- unspoken. You right. Know. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely of the time it comes out, it becomes this kind of more target practice movie than anything right. else. And I think also even the trailers for the movie that was trying to sell it sold it more as a Jim yeah. Carrey vehicle. Right. Which than, is, of course... Right. I mean, that shit happens all the time where right. they mismarket shit based on somebody's lineage, you know. And so, and people can't look past that, and the movie gets shit on for the rest of its existence. I feel like uh, at least Cable Guy has kind of had a little bit of an underground resurgence yeah. over time. Yeah. For sure. People kind of see it for what it is, and... and uh, and and the and the interesting thing about it too is originally, apparently, allegedly, I guess I should say, yeah. is that Ben Stiller and Jim Carrey, when he came aboard, they both wanted to make it more dark. Right. They both wanted to push the darkness a little more, and the company kind of held that back a bit. Said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! We got to be able to sell yeah. this, so we can't have it R-rated, and we can't do this, and we can't, you know." So yeah, because Jim Carrey was pretty insistent that uh, Chip Douglas dies at the right. end. Right. From the perspective of where we are now, all these years later from the film, yeah. you also see that Jim Carrey is more of a darker guy. He really is. Yeah. He's a he's yeah. a dark guy and very um, complicated. He's, and, yeah. Yeah, he's a layered dude. Yeah, yeah and right. so to see that budding into some of this performance, it shows why it works so well. Right. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's where. Yeah. yeah. I was going with that. You can see why he played it like he did. You know right. how well yeah. he played. You mean illegal cable? Um, you're offering me a bribe. What you have just done is illegal. And in this state, if convicted, you could be fined up to five thousand dollars or spend six months in a correctional facility. All right, well, I think that's going to wrap up this particular episode. Yeah, yeah, that's enough. That's enough. Yeah, why not? Uh, so, you know, we'll do the whole question and answer thingy bajigger on our social medias for y'all. Right, so if you want to play along at home, just uh, send us your answers to the questions we've asked each other today. So, uh, all right, then um, we bid you adieu, parting is such sweet sorrow. Yes, um, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed our little journey through this, and uh, hey, we'll be, we'll be back shortly. Yeah, uh, we, we love you. And we're going to end the transmission. <laughs> Bye.